Lord, we thank you that you, as we saw this morning, you are the eternal God, the I am that I am. You are immortal. You are invisible. There is no other God that is wise. You dwell in light, inaccessible. You are glorious in every respect. You have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. It is your breathing out to the prophets and apostles. Teach us, O Holy Spirit, wondrous things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And we're going to read down through verse 25. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the the sea to Capernaum, <clears throat> and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred because of a strong wind blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, <clears throat> they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus 
had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that the disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? (laughs) In this portion of scripture, we come to at least five great miracles in this portion of scripture. Now remember what the purpose of the book of John is. John's purpose, as he relates in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, and many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, that they, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. It's all about, for John's perspective, the signs that Jesus were doing to prove he was the Messiah. Now, we've got to remember that relationship between wonders and signs. We've talked about this before. The wonder, which is the miracle, creates an awe. It's a setting aside of the natural phenomenon. It is a true miracle designed to create in the, the, the person who sees it an awe of this is absolutely amazing. And it's intended to point to that miracle is used to be a sign saying you need to look to or listen to the one who did the miracle. That's the purpose. And that's what John's gospel account is all about. So in Jesus's case, the wonders that he performed were to create in people a, an understanding as a sign, I am really the Messiah. I am the promised Christ, the son of the living God. Now, tragically, we're going to see that most of the people that saw these wonders, they didn't believe in him as the Messiah that he came first to be. They didn't believe in him as a spiritual Messiah we're going to soon see. Now, as we saw in John chapter 3, you remember when Jesus was with Nicodemus and Jesus tells Nicodemus, well, first of all, Nicodemus says, you must be a, a prophet of God because no one can do the things that you do if he's not a prophet. And that's when Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, you've got to be born, you've got to be born of water and the spirit if you're going to see the kingdom of God. But at least we see here that, that Nicodemus understood to a certain degree the relationship between the wonders, the miracles, and what it was intended to demonstrate as a sign. He says, you are a great prophet if you can do these things. Now, before I exposit this text of the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, Jesus' uh, walking on the water, uh, this, this account is, is interesting. This miracle 
is of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all of the gospel accounts. A lot of times the miracles are only recorded by some of the gospel writers, but not all. But this feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we go through here, though I'm dealing with, with John chapter 6, I'm going to bring in some of the other gospel accounts because the other gospel accounts add information that really is pertinent to the miracle of the, of the feeding of the 5,000 and especially is walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. So we're going to bring in all the others so that we get the full picture of these miracles that were taking place. Now in John 6, 1, it says that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke 9, 10 says it was in the general vicinity of Bethsaida. And after the uh, feeding of the of the 5,000 or the, the, the crowd we're going to see here. It says that the, the disciples got into a boat crossing the sea towards Capernaum. Now, what we're going to see, if you know anything of the geography of the area, there's actually then two Bethsaidas. But Bethsaida on the western side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, but that's not the Bethsaida that is being referred to. It says he went to what other scholars say, Bethsaida uh, <clears throat> on the other side, Julius, Bethsaida Julius. And that's where he performed the miracle of the feeding of this great crowd. Now, verse 2 of, of John 6 says something that none of the other gospel writers mentioned about these miracles. John says, look what he says here. <clears throat> because they were, why did the great people, uh, the multitude following Jesus? Because they were seeking the signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, don't say signs. But again, this makes sense because what's the purpose of John's gospel? The wondrous signs to prove he's the Messiah. So that would explain why that's here <clears throat> and not in the other gospel writers' account. Now, Mark's account says that Jesus told his disciples to go to a desert place to rest for they had been engaged in a long activity and that they didn't even have time to eat. And Jesus says, you need to rest. So, they get into a, according to Mark, they get into a private boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee over to what is Bethsaida, uh, Silas, Julius. And Jesus goes up on a mountain uh, there when they cross the sea. He goes up on a mountain and he sits down with his disciples. Now, remember he said he wanted to go to a desert place but Matthew is very clear that it was a grassy knoll where they went. So in a desert area, there was an area on, on a mountainside that had a lot of grass, and that's where Jesus climbed up to with his disciples and sat down. And we're told that this, this crowd walked all the way across the sea around the Sea of Galilee 
to come and find Jesus. They're hunting for Jesus. He's the miracle worker, right? He's healed the sick. And so they're, they're out to find him. And it says that they were, they, they were coming to him, and it explicitly says in our text, because he was healing people of all their diseases. And if you had any kind of disease, you'd want to go find Jesus, wouldn't you? And that's what they were doing. It says in verse 5 here that Jesus, from his vantage point up on this hill, could see all this massive crowd coming towards him. And John does not mention what Matthew and Mark uh, does say. It says, when Jesus saw them, this crowd coming, it says he was moved with compassion. John doesn't even say that. But Matthew and Mark says, he was moved with compassion and he wanted to heal them. But according to Mark, his compassion for the crowd Explicitly, Mark says, because Jesus saw that they were sheep without a shepherd. And that's why he was moved with compassion, according to Mark. And he began to teach them many things. Well, what is the nature of a sheep? They need to be, they need guidance. Anybody that's been an actual shepherd knows you got to keep track of those sheep. It's Chris Strevel, who used to, uh, his mom, when she remarried up in Virginia, dealt with sheep, and and Chris says, they are really dumb animals. (laughs) And they really need guidance. And Jesus likens this crowd to these people and says, "They, they are sheep, they're spiritual sheep, and they need to be taught the kingdom of God. And he is now begins to teach them the things of the kingdom of God from that vantage point. And in verse five of our text here, it says that, Jesus tells Philip something that uh, no other gospel writer mentions. Jesus says to Philip, look what he says in verse 5 there. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread that they may eat? He asked uh, Philip that. Now, we we don't know exactly why it says here that Jesus picked out Philip for some reason of the disciples to ask that. It says, well, where are, we going to get the, where are we going to get all this food for this crowd? Now, <clears throat> we see here that the other gospel writers say that as the evening was approaching, And they came to Jesus saying, now, it's getting late, Jesus. We need to dismiss the people so they can go to the town. We're in a desert area. Dismiss the people so they can go to the town and buy some some food because they're hungry. They didn't bring any food. And we see here that Jesus' statement, again, is quite odd. Where are we going to buy the bread and we, Jesus could have said this, not only where are we going to buy the bread, what are you going to pay for the bread? Now, this is a big crowd. How are you going to pay for it? Now, verse 6, look at verse 6. It explicitly says when Jesus asked Philip that, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. 
So it says he was testing Philip. Testing Philip. Probably in a way as we're going to see, Philip, are you prepared? Now they have already seen some miracles. They'd seen the miracle at the wedding of uh, Cain of Galilee where Jesus changed 150 gallons of watered wine. They saw the, the miracles of the lame man from birth being healed. They'd already saw that. So it's a test. Are you ready for this, Philip? And so he knew he was about to perform an incredible miracle. And after all, as I said, Philip had witnessed all of these things. So in verse 7, looking at this massive crowd, here's what Philip's response. So he's beginning to think, well, first of all, Jesus says, uh, you feed them. We going to feed them? We're going to feed them. Well, then Philip says, well, it's going to take uh, a a lot of money. It's going to take, at least, he says, 200 denarii to buy enough food for this crowd. Now, let me just put you into perspective how big a sum of money that was. You know, according to the scriptures, a denarius was equivalent to a full day's work for a man. They got paid one denarius for an entire day's work. Matthew 20 is an example. So it's Andrew, he says, Lord, it's going to take 200 denarii. 200 days work for one man. That is, do your math, that's nearly a half of a year's wages for a man. Not only that we're going to have to go get this food, we're going to have to have a half a year's wages to buy this food. But then Jesus says, tell the people to sit down. And we're told that, uh, well, first of all, he says, uh, Jesus tells the crowd, uh, there's no need for them to leave. Just tell them to sit down. And you can imagine, imagine what was going on through the, the, the minds of the disciples. Tell the crowd to sit down and uh, you feed them. Well, Andrew says, well, Jesus said, well, what do, we, what do we have? Well, there's a boy over here who's got five barley loaves and two fish. But then they say, it's Andrew who says, but th- this is not enough for this group of people, Jesus. So he tells, Jesus tells them to, to sit down in companies of tens, of fifties uh, and a hundred. Now, <clears throat> I want you to look at verse 10 for a moment. Look at verse 10. And I want you to look, what do you find interesting? Who did, who sat down and what number sat down? Who sat down according to the text? Men, and the number of the men were five thousand. You got to watch. You got to watch out your headings in your Bible. It says the feeding of the five thousand. I'm here to tell you, 
there were more than 5,000 people there. And it's not that the men were the only ones that got to eat. If you turn over, just turn over, keep your place there in John, but turn over to Matthew 14, Matthew's account. Look at verse 21. What does it say there in verse 21? Who ate? Verse 21, Matthew 14. The men and the women and the children. Now, if we were just to run some math, if we were only to consider that 70% of the people, well, that's not be unrealistic that 70% of those people were married. That's not unrealistic. And let's say that those that married had one to two children. It's not unrealistic, right? It said women and children. So it's not unlikely that there were as many up to 15,000 people that were there that got fed with five loaves and two fish, just setting the magnitude of this miracle. Now, one could say, why do the gospel writers, why do they say the men were counted? Why didn't they count the women and children? Well, that wasn't a normal practice in the Old Testament. That's why. And normally when there was a counting of the children of Israel, there was only the counting of men for military purposes of men over 20 years and older for purposes of warfare. And so the men were counted. Now, this was not a derogatory thing towards women and children, but the the Old Testament is very clear that it portrayed male headship. We know that only the males were sent off to uh, to fight battles. There were no women uh, kings. There were no women priests. There were no. There were a few women prophetesses, like Deborah was a was a prophetess. The scripture says. And by the way, in another miraculous event, the feeding of the four thousand. See, that's a separate event. The feeding of the four thousand, uh, recorded in Matthew fifteen, it says the same thing that there were four thousand men along with women and children. Now we're told here in in verse 11, back to John 6, that Jesus blesses the the bread and the fish and he distributes it to his his disciples. You know, this, this could be one place where we learn from scripture, you know, what do we have a practice of doing before we eat? We pray, right? Well, that's following Jesus. That's a Jesus practice. He prayed before they ate bread uh, at the Passover. Here he's praying. He's thanking God because who's the one who bestows food? Who's the one that feeds us? Who's the one who gives us our daily bread? It's God. And so we should always give thanks for our daily bread. Now, you, you might be thinking what was going on in the minds of the disciples as they take these baskets five loaves, and they're handing them out to this crowd that could be 15,000 people. And as they pass it out, everybody's getting food. This massive crowd is getting all of this food. And you remember and recall what Andrew's question was. We only have five loaves uh, and two fish. 
And if we go and spend 200 denarii to get enough food, maybe they'll get a little bit. Just maybe they'll get a little bit out of 200 denarii. Well, what does verse 11 say? The people ate as much as they wanted. You just kept eating. You you wanted more bread, more fish. You kept eating until everybody that wanted all they wanted got everything. And then after he feeds them, it's interesting here. Jesus says, I want you to gather up the the fragments. And the text actually says, uh, look, look at verse 12, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, several commentators, uh, it, it, that is interesting. Jesus didn't want to waste the bread. Someone got over me at, at the lunch for that leftover little bit of chicken and said, you going to eat that? No, I'm not going to eat that. And uh, because we, we shouldn't be wasteful. We should never be wasteful. Jesus says, and it's going to be interesting that this is going to be the food, this is going to be the food that the disciples are going to eat when they get on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's actually their next meal that, that he's talking about. And so what we see here is that these people, look at uh, verse 14. Verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. That's what they said. The prophet who is to come into the world. Now in this regard, when they saw that miracle, they were able to make a connection that the Pharisees never made, mind you. Pharisees didn't make that connection. It is a connection that the woman of the well made, but the others didn't. It's a connection that Nicodemus was making, but others weren't. And what, what, do they, what was this prophet that was to come into the world? Well, Moses was, is known as, as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, there will come a prophet greater than me to whom you better listen to. So this had gone down through the generations for, for centuries that people understood this great prophet was the Messiah. They under, the common folk knew this. Uh, the fishermen, Peter and others, they knew that. They knew their scriptures. These people said, well, he's got to be, he's got to be the Messiah. But it's the Messiah that they were not really prepared to see because what they wanted, they wanted a political Messiah. And... um, it's interesting here 
that the sign, again, the miracle is intended to be a sign pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And again, remember, what's the purpose of John's gospel account? The signs are to prove that Jesus is the Messiah so that you may believe in him and have eternal life. You know, it's interesting here that this crowd of people made the comment that he is that prophet, he is that Messiah. But it is possible for men to acknowledge that Christ is that great prophet, but they turn a deaf ear to that great prophet. Though hearing, they do not hear. Just like Jesus said, if you got ears to hear, then hear. And we need to let this sink in. We really do. Because a person can confess that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, and yet completely miss the kingdom of God. And we need to heed to hear what, to what Jesus has been saying and what Jess has been preaching on in the parables. One is not a genuine Christian simply by confessing that Jesus is the Lord. Now, yes, that's part of it. You do have to, we do have to confess that he is the Lord. But you can't let, let it stay right there. You have to confess and your life with the fruit has to match up with the profession. So there has to be the tandem of the confession with the life that demonstrates I really am one who trusts in Jesus. My fruit, my fruit is not the basis of my salvation, but my fruit demonstrates that I am a Christian. That's what James chapter two is all about, by the way. Now remember Jesus, remember what he said in Luke chapter six? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then in Matthew seven, Jesus says, there are gonna be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, and did we not do many wonderful miracles? Did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless ones. In other words, your life did not match up with what you just declared that I was Lord. You see, if Jesus is really my Lord and is your Lord, your life is going to reflect it. Remember, Jesus said a, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and a good tree will not produce bad fruit. A good tree will always produce fruit. And in John chapter 15, we're going to see that Jesus says that we're to bear much fruit and thereby prove, Jesus says, that you're my disciples. So it's possible. These people, they understood what the Pharisees didn't understand, but then they still understood incorrectly. And uh, verse 15, take a look at verse 15. This is really amazing to me. 
Jesus, therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself alone. Now, just think about that for a moment. (laughs) They were going to kidnap Jesus. That's what he says. They were going to take him by force. Well, that is a kidnapping. If someone takes you by force, Aubrey, they have kidnapped you. They were going to kidnap Jesus. And they said, well, here's the Messiah. And we're we're going to kidnap him, go to Jerusalem, and we we definitely want them, those, those pesky Romans not to be around anymore. And we'll use Jesus, just like the zealots wanted to use Jesus to get rid of Roman rule. And we'll make him do what we want. (laughs) This man who just fed a crowd of maybe 15,000, you're going to kidnap this guy? The one who can heal men with diseases, oh, you're going to kidnap this this person? How well do you think that had gone over? Jesus would have nothing to do. Notice it says, he understood what they were In other words, what they were thinking. Well, how did he know what they were thinking? (laughs) Because he's the God-man, right? Remember, he knew what uh, Nathaniel, he knew not only where Nathaniel was, he knew what Nathaniel was thinking. And that's why Nathaniel says, my Lord and my God. Jesus knows the hearts of men and he knew exactly what they intended to do and he was going to have no part of that. First of all, that's now how the Messiah is going to carry out his mission on earth and it's not time for him to go to Jerusalem anyway. So Jesus goes away to a lonely place to pray, which by the way is, I've taken that. This is not the only place. This is why I've had a custom for years to go find a lonely place as much as possible to my prayer place to where I go meet the Lord. Not that that place is holier than others. But Jesus went to a lonely place on a mountain. (laughs) When I was up in the mountains in Virginia, I went up to the mountain as well to pray. But that's beside the point. From that vantage point, we're told that um, the disciples got into a boat to go back across the sea to Capernaum The text says it already grown dark now and when they began their journey. Verse 19 of our text, if you look at that, says they had only gone about three to four miles when the wind was such that they were struggling. Now at the the widest width of the Sea of Galilee is eight miles across. So let's just assume they were at the, the, the widest part, Sea of Galilee. They'd only gotten halfway. Now, under normal circumstances, in rowing a boat, you can get across the Sea of Galilee in two hours. Now, it says that they had left right as it was getting dark, and we're told, according to the text, 
they were about in the midst of the sea. They were about halfway. And it was the fourth watch. Now, the fourth watch was between 3 and 4 a.m. I don't know when it got dark in that period of the world at that time. But that two-hour journey was not two hours. They had already gone. They could have gone six hours and only gotten halfway. And the, 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 the scripture says Jesus saw them struggling. And he comes to them. And of course it says, uh, well, we could, we could ask this question. But here's another miracle. How did Jesus see them if it was dark? Well, he's the God man, right? What is darkness to the God man? He sees them struggling and he comes to them. And then we see here that another amazing thing occurs. Jesus is walking on the top of the water on the top of the waves. And verse 19, rightly so, it says in the disciples, they see this figure coming to them, walking on the water, and they go, a ghost, a ghost. And they were greatly afraid. Why? Well, men don't walk on water, do they? Of course not. So you could assume it's got to be a ghost. But then Jesus says, he speaks to them, says, don't be afraid, it is I. Now, I think in one sense, we can deduce more than the fact that once Jesus says, don't be afraid, it is I, I think there's more to it than the fact that it wasn't a ghost after all, it was Jesus, the master. Uh, I think there's more to it because of what he says in the other gospel writers. Jesus says, be of good cheer, it is I. You know, if you have God in your midst, should you ever be afraid? No. We should never, ever be afraid. If you've got God with you, why should you and me, why should we ever be afraid? Is there ever a time that Jesus is not with his redeemed? No. There's never a time that we're left alone. Be of good cheer, because I'm with you. Remember the, the, the Great Commission later on, going to all the world, make disciples. For I will be with you until the end of the world. He's always with us. There's no need, brethren, of any anxiety in us at any time because we have Jesus, the God-man, the creator of the universe with us. And on Matthew's account, it's interesting that John doesn't even mention Peter in this instance. But the other gospel writers said, when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, Lord, bid me to come out. All right, come on out, Peter. 
And it says he was doing well until he looked at the wind and thought, what am I doing out here? And it says he began to sink and he cried out, save me, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him. And it's noteworthy what Jesus says, Peter, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? In other words, you were doing so well. Now, see, that's another miracle here. Now, it's amazing that Jesus, the creator, can walk on water. But who else walked on water? A mere man, Peter, was walking on water. That is a miracle. And the only reason you sank, Peter, is because you doubted. You looked at the circumstances. You know, this is a great principle I've mentioned here before. Faith and fear cannot coexist. Where there is faith, there is no fear. And where there's fear, there is no faith. That is an axiom of Scripture. And once you, and once you understand that, it will change your life. Because we all have a tendency to be anxious, right? Oh, let's just face it, we do. We can, we can see great things and then a month later, we're going, oh, I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if other bills are going to get paid. I don't know where the next food's going to come from. I don't know if we're going to pay this. I don't know about that. I don't know about, we can go on and on. If we had faith in the promises of God, because God says, I'm going to always take care of you. Jesus says, I know you need food and clothing. Your father knows that. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added into you. Just don't doubt. When Jesus and Peter get into the boat, another miracle occurred. The storm stopped immediately. The whole sea was calm the minute Peter and Jesus get into the boat. And um, not only was that miraculous, I want you to look at verse 21, John 6. Someone tell me what was the next miracle that happened. Verse 21. Remember, they were halfway across the sea. Jesus teleported them like that. Star Trek wasn't the first one to come up with that. <laughs> Instantly, they were at the other side. That's a miracle. How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. But he said, I got you there. That's why the people over there says, how'd you get here, Jesus? How'd you beat us over here? You know, when um, Matthew's account says, um, when, when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, it says, 
Uh, it says, thou art the son of God. But I want you to turn over with me for a moment to Mark's account. Turn over to Mark 6, verse 51 and 52. Here's what Mark says when Peter and Jesus got into the boat. Look at verse 51. He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. They were greatly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. We, you know, when you get that, you got to do some searching in the scriptures, what on earth did he mean there? That, first of all, they didn't learn from the feeding of the 5,000. What should they have learned? That, that the Lord can do anything, that he can multiply things to any number that he wants. And they did not immediately learn from that. The other gospel writer says, they were astonished and they were said, you're the son of God. But the best way to understand where it says, Mark says the heart was hardened. It is not the hardening that the Bible talks about where the Pharisees' hearts were hardened like Jesus says. It's not that kind of hardening. Or like uh, what Hebrew says about the children of Israel in the wilderness hardened their hearts in a state of unbelief. The best way to understand that is they didn't make the immediate connection that they should have made. And Matthew simply says, they'll eventually make that connection, says you're the son of God. So they'll finally put it all together about this. Now, what have we seen here? We've seen five great miracles. First, the feeding of a crowd, maybe 15,000. The multiplication of the loaves and the fish. Second, Jesus walking on the water, a miracle. <clears throat> Jesus seeing them in the dark, knowing exactly where they were, a third miracle. A fourth miracle, Peter and Jesus, well, Jesus walks on the water, a miracle. A fifth miracle, Peter is walking on the water. And then the last miracle, they get transported to the other half of the sea instantaneously. Signs, signs, signs to do what? These miracles, they were wonders to create an awe to prove one point, John says, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And by believing in him, you have eternal life. We're, we're told as we end right here, turn back to John uh, 6, the last few verses, 
like verse 24, when the, the multitude saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into small boats and came to Capernaum waiting for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And then we're going to see how hard Jesus was on those who, who though they saw these signs, though they made the connection that he is the great Messiah, they still had the wrong, the wrong idea about the Messiah. Remember, they wanted to take him by force. They wanted to kidnap him. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. But we're going to have to wait till next week. Let us pray. Lord, be with us. We thank you that we have these wonderful examples. We don't need to have these miracles today because we, we got the recorded word of the living God. We, we have your inspired word. And we know that that which is written is true because you wrote it through your inspired writers. So Lord, help us to marvel in the God whom we worship and in the Savior who has redeemed us. May glory be given to Jesus. Amen.